year is 1720, and the prospect of easy riches consumes all of smelly, rapacious, disease-ridden, bustling London. All of England, even, from the king and senior politicians on down to journalists, writers, sex workers, innkeepers and tradespeople. Exchange Alley, or Change Alley as it's known, is buzzing as the wheeling and dealing of stock jobbers, a new and widely despised profession, mingles with the chatter of speculators in the coffee houses, another innovation, where their trades are taking place. Yes, this is the famous South Sea bubble. The speculative frenzy that almost fell the royal dynasty dashed the dreams of many, as people who thought they were rich suddenly were poor again, and perversely but inevitably enriched and even ennobled most of its major protagonists. The South Sea Company turned out to be a swindle. That sorry fact emerged too late, when, after the bubble burst, Parliament began digging into the goings-on and asking awkward questions. There was an irony, well, a hypocrisy too, because many of those who had supplemented their already considerable wealth sat in the very same chambers of the Mother of Parliaments. Indeed, one of the markers of the whole affair was an outrageous level of corruption, particularly among senior lawmakers. There was also an element of comedy, as another of the main protagonists literally took the money and ran, escaping across the channel with his son, a scoundrel in his own right, it turned out. His son, a large sum of money and a green ledger that contained the names of the lawmakers and plenty of others, who'd decided to support the South Sea project after pocketing some enormous bribes. The comedy came as political pressure forced the government to seek the extradition of the man with the green ledger, at the same time as the need to protect the regime, let's call it that, forced it to tell foreign governments, privately, very privately, that under no circumstances, none at all, none whatsoever, under no circumstances did it want the return of the fugitive. Hello, and welcome to the South Sea Bubble, Part 1, The Hollow Sword Blade Company. This is Series 1, Episode 4 of the Boom and Bust podcast. This was originally intended to be a single episode, but as I poked around researching the affair, and particularly after I found a copy of John Carswell's book called, of course, The South Sea Bubble, I realised it would have to sprawl into two episodes. So let's get to it and set the scene for one of the most tumultuous affairs of Britain's lengthy and colourful history of political corruption. Because, and I say this because I am a British national, the ordinary man's view is that British politics is at the bottom basically clean. Large-scale political corruption is for those naughty southerners in Spain or Italy, and in France, of course, uh, but not really us. This, of course, involves closing your eyes, crossing your fingers, and stopping up your ears and ignoring the news. That's just nowadays. British history has no shortage of instances of hair-raising levels of corruption. The tale of the South Sea Company is one of them. 
The South Sea Company has given its name to what is probably the most notorious of financial bubbles and their subsequent collapses. There's a good reason for this. The notoriety stems from the fact that while history is usually written by the winners, in this case many losers were writers and journalists, and you don't get to mess with the writers and the journalists without the world hearing about it. No way at all. Also, the affair has received a lot of attention from English-speaking historians. This is quite understandable. There's a lot of material out there in terms of primary sources. Those sources are already in English, so there's no need to struggle over the meaning of a page of 18th century French or Spanish or something. Plus, it's a fun story. It's a story that can be spun into a cautionary tale. And who doesn't love a good cautionary tale? Especially one that teaches that you can't get something for nothing. Except that something for nothing was generally what the British elite was looking for. And what its members felt they deserved. And, to be honest, it's what they usually got. Certainly something from nothing was pretty much what the people behind the South Sea Company ended up with. Here we have to remember that there's a boatload of snobbery involved, and there's nothing that the British ruling class does better than snobbery. That's particularly important when it comes to contemporaries' view of events. Helen J. Paul, a lecturer in economics and economic history at Southampton University, argues that the South Sea scheme became a focus of worries about religious and national identity, misogyny and class prejudice. Quote, These contemporary concerns were more important and more readily understood than the newfangled stock market. Old writings of the landed elite should be considered with the following proviso. The elite were a largely anti-Semitic, xenophobic, anti-Catholic group who wished that servants and women would stay in their places the new stock market threatened to put money into the hands of Jews, dissenters, women, etc. In Exchange Alley, these people could interact without the landed squires having much idea of what they were about. This situation raised the spectre of not just one group of troublemakers, but various permutations between groups. With regard to women, they might meet and marry men of a different rank and religion. End quote. Paul also points out, as an aside, that women speculating in South Sea shares tended to make money. The men mostly lost out. At the outset, the South Sea Company was arguably a legitimate exercise, formed to do much the same thing as John Law's Mississippi Company in France, reduce the debt the government had run up in fighting its many wars, but principally, in this case, the War of the Spanish Succession of 1701 to 1713. If you want to know more about John Law and you haven't heard my two episodes on it, I recommend them. They're uh, kind of interesting and it's a very fun story. Back to the South Sea Company, this wasn't the country's first attempt to tackle its finances. Reducing debt had also become the rationale for the founding of the Bank of England at the end of the previous century. 
This was actually a step in the process of the financial revolution that, in England at least, would break the traditional cycle of war, debt, excessive taxation, and eventually whole or partial default, then on to the next war. The modernisation of government funding was a fundamental part of that development. However, the Bank of England was identified with and run by the Whig faction that dominated Parliament at the time. The Tories, the other faction, many of whom dreamed of abolishing the Bank of England, wanted something that would counterbalance it. And in an election in 1710, they got their opportunity, winning a majority in the House of Commons. The South Sea Company was established in 1711, giving the company trading privileges in exchange for funds. According to Richard Dale's book, The First Crash, The Lessons of the South Sea Bubble, political backing was assured thanks, as we shall see, largely to bribery. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. We need to step back a bit and look at the wider context, the political and economic situation. And we also need to meet the protagonists of the affair. So let's start with them and their stories. Step forward, John Blunt, a scrivener, and his partners in the Hollow Sword Blade Company. As scriveners were writers of legal contracts, and much more than that. They were the go-betweens, the estate agents who knew just the property for exactly that gentleman of means, who had just spoken with the rich guy who was looking for just that investment. They were also the source of the fine print, the detail where the devil in the contract resides. They were, in effect, a sort of investment banker, 18th century style, putting money in touch with opportunity and vice versa. The Hollow Sword Blade Company was set up in 1691 to manufacture, as its name suggests, sword blades. But that business went bust. The founder committed suicide and the company was sold to Blunt and his associates, Elias Turner, Jacob Sawbridge and George Caswell. As we shall see, Blunt and co. used the Sword Blade Company as the bank, the holding company that pulled the strings of the South Sea Company. Blunt, forgive the pun, well, it's actually not mine, everybody makes it. Blunt was a very sharp fellow and very interested in making money. According to Carswell's book, Blunt was the son of a shoemaker from Rochester in Kent, about 50 kilometres south of London. As an aside, it has a castle that was besieged by King John in the 13th century, as well as a pretty magnificent cathedral. Blunt was a Baptist, quote, burly and overbearing, glib, ingenious and determined to get on, end quote. At the time, the only bank permitted to operate was the Bank of England, but Blunt and his partners were intent on changing that. But they couldn't do it openly because of the Bank of England's exclusive. That said, they don't appear to have been overburdened by scruples or a desire to hew to the letter of the law. Moreover, with the Tories running the show, they knew exactly where they needed to be. And that was in cahoots with the government. 
The bank, don't forget, was a Whig invention. In particular, Blunt and Co. were in league with the man in charge of the nation's finances, the Lord High Treasurer, in effect the Chancellor of the Exchequer, or the Minister of Finance, and also in effect the Prime Minister before that office had been invented. This was Earl Robert Harley. The events of the early 1700s were played out in the wake of the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688. This bears talking about because a casual observer might view it as neither glorious nor a revolution. Briefly, the all-too-Catholic James II of the Stuart dynasty was replaced by his brother-in-law, the Dutch ruler William of Orange, a staunch Protestant. In what was basically an invasion by a foreign power, the Dutch, and a coup d'etat, all orchestrated by sections of the English ruling elite. This part isn't generally mentioned by the standard histories of this country. For, for these, Britain was last invaded in 1066, when the Normans knocked the Anglo-Saxon elite off their perch. This is just wrong. William invaded... The fact that large sections of the ruling class asked him to do so just shows that a bit of treason at the top is far from unthinkable when certain interests are threatened. This all took place in the context of the religious warfare between Protestantism and Catholicism, the latter known as Popery, and this was endemic in Europe at the time. Here's Edward Valence author of a book on the Glorious Revolution, on William's invasion. Quote, The forces that the Prince of Orange amassed for his invasion were vast. The flotilla consisting of 43 men of war, four light frigates and ten fireships, protecting over 400 flyboats, capable of carrying 21,000 soldiers. All in all, it was an armada four times the size of that launched by the Spanish in 1588. After just six weeks, James, with William's connivance, had fled to the continent. But Jacobite rebellions continued for years, and fear of the popery behind them added up to a convenient bogeyman when distractions were needed. Ireland, of course, got involved in all this, as indeed did Scotland, and King William ended up bloodily subduing re uh, rebellions in those countries. Around the turn of the century, King William was forced to sell estates that he'd confiscated from the rebel Irish nobility in an effort to cover some of the expenses of the fighting. And here we see an example of the financial acuity and lack of scruples that marked out the partners in the Sword Blade Company. They didn't have any money, or none that they wanted to spend anyway. But no worries, where there's a will, there's a way. This turned out to be essentially a debt-for-equity swap with a bit of front-running thrown in. Front-running, by the way, is when an intermediary learns of a client's plan to buy something and gets in there first, betting that the customer's order will push up the price, allowing him to sell at a profit. This is frowned upon. Uh, amounts to insider trading. Here's how the Sword Blade Company did it. Government debt at the time was selling at a discount, probably at about 85% of face value. 
So you could pay £85 and the government would owe you £100. The problem, and the reason for the discount, was that the government had no money and might not pay you at all. Blunt & Co. offered to accept the government's notes at full value, paying for them with shares in the Swordblade Company. They then turned around and arranged for the government to accept the notes, again at face value, in payment for the land in Ireland. The former bondholders were now Swordblade shareholders, and the company would pay them a dividend for their trouble, if it made any money. Meanwhile, the government, which had been paying 7.5% interest on the notes, could cancel them and reduce its interest bill. Put a pin in this, because it's a technique we're going to see further down the line. The deal netted the partners £200,000 of land in Ireland, with rents of about £20,000 a year, which is a pretty decent bargain even though, as it turned out, the deal didn't really work out for them long term. So, a win-win? Everyone was happy? Well, yes, unless you are one of the people who had sold Blunt & Co. your bonds at 85% face value, before the government's willingness to accept them at par, at 100% of face value, was made public. Daniel Defoe, the author of Robinson Crusoe, in 1701 composed a diatribe called The Villainy of Stock Jobbers Detected, which was directed at stock jobbers in general and at Blunt's partners in particular. Quote, The next trick they tried, and which was indeed the masterpiece of their knavery, was the getting an assignment of the forfeited estates in Ireland into their hands. End quote. He goes on, quote, Now they stand ready, as occasion offers and profit presents, to stock job the nation, cousin the parliament, ruffle the bank, run up and run down stocks, and put the dice upon the whole town. End quote. In case you were wondering, Cousin means to deceive, to win over, or induce to do something by artful coaxing and wheedling, or shrewd trickery, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. A quick aside on amounts of money, none of the figures are comparable with modern amounts. If you insist, you can probably multiply a figure by 100, say, to get an approximation of the value. But given the differences in living standards between the various social classes, the result is basically meaningless. A country clergyman could get by on £60 a year, an army officer on a little more. But that didn't mean an aristocrat wouldn't spend twice that on a bed, or a suit of clothing, or a ne necklace for his mistress. So, in the wider economy, as the first decade of the 18th century drew to a close, the key word on British financial markets was optimism. There was the flotation of a company, an insurer, trade was increasing, London was an entrepot, and the war of the Spanish succession was drawing to a close, though it still had a few years to drag on. At the same time, the importance of Amsterdam, London's rival, was waning. The authorities there didn't allow joint stock companies. England was the only place in Europe where life insurance was available. The other nations thought it was a bit immoral to put a price on a life. 
So anyone looking for a bit of excitement on the markets would have been well advised to look to London. There were regular newspapers so people could see what was going on if they could sort the wheat of real events from the chaff of the widespread spin and fake news. Helping in that were the new coffee houses where the news could be both disseminated and discussed. And while the City of London was basically a small group of people, it was very dynamic and it was growing fast. But a major issue, along with religion, one of the questions at the centre of politics at the time, was the national debt. For one thing, no one really knew how big it was. That was because the various bits of the government issued their own debt. So if the Royal Navy wanted cannons, say, it would issue notes to pay for them. Soldiers and sailors were also paid with bits of paper. There were annuities around the place paying individuals pensions, some of which were backed by revenue streams such as customs duties, some of which weren't. It was a mess. The upshot was that there was no central accounting and no consolidated figure for the size of the state's liabilities. And taxation was, as ever, an issue. The Tories' main supporters in the shires hated the main tax, a land tax, so revenue was a problem. One of the ways the government sought to raise money was through lotteries. The Bank of England was supposed to be running one, but it actually wasn't doing a very good job. In 1711, Blunt persuaded Chancellor Harley to let him have a go, and it was a runaway success. Encouraged by this, he went on to organise a second, far bigger one, with a top prize of an unprecedented £20,000. This one was dubbed the Two Million Adventure, and it reeled in the punters by offering some guarantees and by allowing partial payment of tickets. The draw was divided up into several classes, offering different ranges of prizes, so in effect you could enter several lotteries at the same time. This technique would have been familiar to anyone who'd followed the career of John Law, he of the Mississippi bubble, that was coming down the pike about a decade later. So when the new Tory administration set up the South Sea Company in 1711, it was capitalised by forcing the holders of £9 million of unfunded annuities, annuities that had no cash flow attached to them, to swap their securities for stock. In exchange, the company was handed a monopoly on trade with Spanish possessions in the Americas. The state also agreed to pay it interest of about £568,000 annually, on the debt taken over, secured on indirect taxation. To gain the monopoly on trade with Spain's Latin American colonies, the company also loaned the government two and a half million pounds. But the big problem here was that its business wasn't going anywhere. I mean, it wasn't like England and Spain were at war or anything, but actually they were at war. As Charles Kinderberger and Robert Aliber put it in Mania's Panics and Crashes, quote, In the South Sea bubble, the monopoly of trade in the South Atlantic was purely incidental. Very quickly, consolidation of British government debt overwhelmed the South Atlantic trade aspects of the enterprise, and stock jobbing overwhelmed government debt shortly thereafter, 
end quote. Carswell agrees, quote, almost because it was so brilliant as a financial and political stroke, the scheme as a business proposition was from the first a sham, end quote. This oversimplifies things, however. The monopoly the company received was known as the Asiento, and it gave the South Sea Company the right to the slave trade with Spain's American holdings. And concessions were, in fact, wrung out of Spain in the peace talks the British held to end their involvement in the war. Economic historians such as Helen Paul at Southampton University argue that it was entirely rational to view the company's prospects positively. The English at the time were pretty enthusiastic slavers. On top of that, she points out that the company was an emanation of the state, a public-private enterprise and part of a national project that aimed to make Britain strong enough to fund and fight wars. From the very beginning, the South Sea Company was a highly political, factional entity, and over time, it would only become more entwined with the state and the ruling elite. But Kindleberger and Aleber are by and large correct. The real job of the company was, stage by stage, to take over the part of the national debt not owned by the Bank of England and the East India Company joining those two as one of the so-called Three Sisters. Here we can fast forward a few years to 1714, when Queen Anne, who had succeeded William of Orange in 1702, died and was succeeded by George I, the first monarch of the House of Hanover. This would be important later in the affair, for a variety of reasons that we don't need to go into here. George distrusted the Tories, who were inclined to support the claims on the throne of the Stuarts, and as a result, leaned on the Whigs to retain his grip on the monarchy. Pretty much as soon as he took the throne, George booted out the Tory cabinet and replaced it with one mainly consisting of Whigs. The move was confirmed by the election of 1715, which returned a parliament dominated by Whigs, who promptly purged any Tories in positions of power. That prompted a screaming, rubber-burning U-turn on the part of Blunt and his pals, who kicked the Tory Harley out of his job as governor of the South Sea Company and replaced him in what was largely a ceremonial position with King George's son, another George. But the Sword Blade Company was the spider at the centre of the South Sea web, the puppet master that was really pulling the strings of the South Sea Company. So here we should introduce Robert Knight, who is a central figure in the story. Knight joined the South Sea Company in 1709 and was made cashier. He was the son of a wealthy London sugar baker. A sugar baker was the owner of a factory for the refining of raw sugar from the West Indies. Sugar refining would normally be combined with sugar trading, a lucrative business. Knight was also the son-in-law of Jeremiah Powell, a director, and they called them governors at the time, of the Bank of England. Apparently he'd fallen out with Powell for some reason, but this gives an idea of the kind of circles he moved him. We're not talking farm labourers here. Carswell describes Knight as, quote, 
a man of exceptional abilities, unlimited ambition and complete lack of scruple, end quote. Knight was already wealthy prior to his activities in the South Sea Company, according to a pamphlet called The True and Lamentable History of Robert Knight, Esquire, published by the Woodford Historical Society. Already in 1716, he was able to splash out about £30,000 and set about building a mansion in the Palladian style at Luxborough, near Chigwell in Essex, about 25 kilometres north of London. Sadly, the mansion was demolished in 1800 by a gin distiller. Knight was central to the South Sea scheme, according to Carswell. Quote, Blunt provided cunning, bluster and technical draftsmanship, but Knight's was the power of innovation, charm and ingenuity that made the thing possible. End quote. According to Carswell, he knew John Law and was well aware of what the Mississippi Company was doing in France although Knight isn't mentioned in James Buchan's huge biography of law. So what was the plan? Basically, the South Sea Company would take onto its balance sheet more than £31 million of government debt, which it would pay for with its shares. Back in those days, companies had to get parliamentary approval to issue a certain number of shares. But how would those shares be valued? What was a share of £100 nominal value worth in terms of the £31.5 million of government debt it was preparing to buy? And the way it panned out, and this was after a major row in Parliament, complete with dire warnings about what could go wrong and eventually did, the share would be worth whatever the market value was at the time. So the higher the share price on the market, the fewer new shares, a number limited by law, don't forget, the fewer new shares the company would have to hand over to the government's creditors. That meant that it would have more spare shares to sell on the open market, and the more shares it sold, the more money it would raise from the public, and therefore the bigger the dividend it would be able to pay its shareholders. And who were its shareholders? glad you asked. Among others, principally the directors and senior officers of the company and the Swordblade Bank, but also various members of the aristocratic elite. But first, it had to actually get the legislation permitting all this through Parliament, and that wasn't going to be easy. For one thing, a lot of legislators were opposed. For another, the Bank of England thought that it should be the main actor consolidating government debt and made a counter-offer to the South Sea Company's first proposal. That, in turn, forced Blunt and Co. to raise their offer, making them ever more reliant on keeping the share price high. Eventually, the bank retired beaten. The South Sea Company had agreed to pay the Exchequer £4 million, plus a further sum that might be as much as £3.5 million, depending on how much debt was actually converted. It also reduced the rate of interest the government would be charged on the debt it took on, and it made it redeemable after four years rather than seven. In summary, in other words, the company would have a lower income from the state than originally planned for less time than it had bargained for. 
the company now had to ensure that it had the right friends in the right places. It had the clever idea of selling its shares to politicians on credit rather than for cash, giving the buyer the right to sell the same shares back to the company and pocket any difference in price as profit on the trade. That gave powerful people an incentive to ensure the share price rose and stayed up. This was a system that didn't actually require any shares or any cash to change hands. It was a sort of contract for difference in which the buyer could only win. It was Knight who dealt with this part of the preparations. Entering the names of the beneficiaries and the number of shares assigned to them in a ledger with green covers. This is the famous green ledger. Recipients, their names duly entered in the ledger, included King George's mistress, her two daughters by the king, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, John Islaby. John got himself a sweet deal, collecting the right to make £200 for each point the stock went above 130 that was at a time when the shares were already at £180, so he had a chunky profit already well and truly locked in. So he was in for a penny, in for a lot of pounds. So we now have the company set up and running. We have a business proposition, although it's not a particularly strong one. We have lawmakers already bribed and invested in the success of the company. And we have the ruling classes on board with the idea and slavering at the idea of making more money. So that seems like a good place to end this first part of the story. Next time, we'll take a look at the way it all panned out. And rest assured, there will be fireworks. So thank you for listening and join me next time as we follow the further adventures of the man with the green ledger and the not so enthusiastic attempts to have him extradited back to his home country. The music is a piece called All This Time by Clive Carroll. And do subscribe on your friendly local podcatching service and rate and review the show. So join me next time for the further adventures of Robert Knight, John Blunt and the Hollow Sword Blade Company.